Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello and welcome to Out with Susie Ruffle. This is Susie Ruffle as it is every week. Hello. Uh, I hope you're having an okay day. Uh, my day is is going all right this morning. I took Velma the cat to the vets and uh, forgot on the way home that she gets travel sick. So that was nice to deal with this morning. But uh, she's okay. So that's all good. Uh, thank you to so many of you that got in touch last week after the M&EK episode. I just absolutely love him. I love his music. I went for a run a couple of days ago whilst listening to him. I mean, the running's still dreadful, but the music was excellent. Uh, so I'm delighted so many of you enjoyed it. As ever, lots of you have been in touch on the email. Hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Thank you so much for sending in your coming out stories or your feelings, how you feel about the podcast. Please carry on doing it. Um, I'm always looking for stuff to share on the show. So if you've got something you'd like to share, please, please do. Uh, we're getting lots and lots of great feedback for the series already, which is just filling my heart with joy. Lots of people have um, left reviews on iTunes. That's super helpful. If you do have time to do that, I would really appreciate it. But yeah, on with today's show, we've got another brilliant episode. The fantastic Mae Martin. Many of you will know her from Feel Good and, uh, and her stand up. But before that, as ever, I will be sharing listener correspondence. It's one of my favourite things about the show um, that you guys get in touch with me. And lots of people get in touch with me just to tell me that they're really loving the podcast. And I don't always share those ones because it really sounds like I'm blowing my own trumpet. But those of you that have sent in lovely messages about my stand up or about the show or about loving this show and like minded friends, I want you to know that I read every single email that comes in and it really means a lot to me. And even if I don't read it out, I'm still reading it and I'm appreciating it. Right. Here we go. Now, this email was titled Finding Pride and then in brackets again. And the person hasn't said whether they want to share their name, so I'm going to not share it just in case they don't want me to. Hi, Susie. First of all, I hope you are safe and well in these weird times. I need to thank you. I've followed you for a few years now, in brackets, not in a stalker way, don't worry. And recently was recommended your podcast from a friend from uni. Thank you for giving me back hope in a world that recently went into darkness for me. I recently went through a breakup of my first relationship of nearly two years. It was toxic for us both, and I recognise that. He wasn't out, and I was fine with this for months. I put myself back in the closet, didn't tell my closest friends for six months that I was in a relationship, and didn't get to tell people what his name was until a year in. I struggled to deal with this, and after two years, I needed to come away. I needed to be me, and honestly, to be gay. I don't blame him, not for one second. 
coming out is tough and he isn't ready and I fully comprehend that. I just knew that I couldn't go back into the closet again. Whilst the relationship was messy, I still miss him months after seeing him last. And I know I need to be selfish. I love him, but I can't hurt us both again. So here I am, listening to your podcast with tears rolling down my face. I feel loved, I feel proud, I feel wanted. Your podcast has given me hope from the future and I feel like I'm coming out to the world for a second time. I am a reborn gay man who watches Drag Race, listens to musicals and owns far too many rainbow flags. Thank you for reminding me it's okay to be me and it's okay to express who I am whenever I want. And thank you for being so truly honest and helping me find my pride again. All the love, rainbows and pink triangles. Thank you so much for sending that in. I mean, I think I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, but I had a really messy breakup about four years ago now. And anyone that's seen me do stand-up will have seen me do a whole show about how it made me feel, basically. But, oh, it's tough. It, 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 was, it was awful. I felt like I wasn't me for quite a long time, actually. And um, I was really out of sorts. And I, I was really miserable for quite a long time. And every time I saw her, it would feel like my guts were being ripped out from inside of me. But, I mean, all I can say is that, you know, after time, it did get better. It did get easier. I did realise that relationship wasn't really right for me or her in the end. And I, I really came to sort of a sense of peace with it. But I know how you're feeling. And anyone that's going through that, it is just utterly gutting. And it's so tough. But, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, you guys hear me now talking about Alice and talking about our hopes for the future and the fact that we're getting married. And, you know, it was only, you know, four years ago that I was just beside myself with with sadness. And so it, it does get better, but you do have to sort of ride it out, or at least I did. But I am so, so chuffed that the podcast is um, being there for you. And um, I hope that you're doing okay. And you should be whoever you want to be and express yourself however you want. And so you enjoy the next episode of Drag Race and musicals, which I listen to a lot. And I've got loads of rainbow flags too. So thank you for getting in touch. Uh, We have another email that I'm going to share just before uh, we get on to May's brilliant interview. Okay. Hi, Susie. I really love listening to the podcast each week and hearing more about each person's own experience of sexuality and gender identity. I think it really helps people to understand more beyond stereotypes and tropes. Having said that, it does feel a bit hurtful when you use the acronym LGBTQI+. In other online communities, it's pretty common to use LGBTQIA+. So leaving off the A feels like you're saying asexual people aren't included in the community. I appreciate this might seem like a silly quibble, and of course we can be included in the plus, but I had really hoped that you might talk to someone who would explain the nuances of being asexual. I understand that in the queer community there can often be a feeling that having fought so hard for the right to have sex, asexual people seem to challenge that. But I can say that for myself at least, and a lot of people who I have listened to and read about, this isn't the case. We're often massively involved in wider advocacy work and support everyone's identity. What's more, there's far more variations of sexuality under the asexual umbrella, including demisexual, which is people who are only sexually attracted to people once they are emotionally invested. 
kink and asexuals who still do have sex for a number of reasons. As a homoromantic asexual myself, a girl who is romantically attracted to girls, it's been hard trying to work out a place for myself. And I wish there'd been more mainstream understanding of asexuality when I was a teenager. And I wish there was more now. I only understood this about myself last year and I'm still learning. So this is in no way meant to be a criticism. It's just a query, really, to someone I admire and who I hope is open to listening. You're absolutely right. I'm totally open to listening. And you're right, I have been leaving the A off and that's in no way because I'm trying to leave out asexual people. Um, I think it's just because uh, in my dyslexia, I'm always worried that I'm going to leave one of the letters out and, uh, and, and I have done. So I'm going to make a massive effort to always make sure I put the A on. Uh, please let me put a caveat in there. All of the interviews are already done. So if I'm doing them in the interview section, that's already sort of done and edited and finished. So I can't go in and change those bits. But in these top and tails, I will make an effort to include the A. And I'm sorry that you didn't feel included, but you definitely, definitely are. And you're absolutely right. I haven't interviewed anyone asexual and I really should. And I'm going to do some research and it might not be in this series. It might be in series three, but I would do some research and try and find someone because I'll be completely honest, it's something that I don't know much about at all. I'd probably be really worried about getting it wrong. So let me make sure that I chat to someone and I can learn a bit more and I can make sure that I'm um, that I'm being completely inclusive, which is always my aim. So thank you for bringing that to my attention and let me work out how to, how to rectify that. Right, on to today's interview, which is with the brilliant Mae Martin. I'm going to do a trigger warning at the top. She mentions in the podcast that she had a relationship with a much older man when she was 15. Now, we don't go into it. It's something that doesn't really come up any more than just her mentioning it. Um, and we didn't talk any more about it in the interview. But I just want to let you know in case that makes you feel uncomfortable or it brings up anything for you. So I'm just letting you know. Uh, OK, let's go to the interview now. The fantastic Mae Martin. I think she's brilliant. I know loads of you are already huge fans of her. Um, let's go to that interview now. Hello, listeners. I have a truly wonderful guest today. Mae Martin is a stand-up. She's also a writer. Her shows manage to be thoughtful, heartfelt and hilarious. She also writes and stars in Feel Good, a brilliant new sitcom on Channel Floor and Netflix. Feel Good is a show that I absolutely love. Similar to her stand-up, it's funny, powerful and moving in equal measure. May is a force to be reckoned with. And I mean, her career is just at the beginning. She's going to continue to skyrocket. I just know it. But don't just take my word for it. She is loved by audiences and critics alike. She was nominated for the best show at the Edinburgh Fringe, receiving glowing reviews across the board. And praise for Feel Good was just as brilliant. The Guardian called it an immaculate rom-com that will have you head over hills. Even Jennifer Aniston raved about it. Welcome to the show, May. Thank you very much. I should also mention that you're my friend. Yeah. You're my friend, yeah. May. That made it sound like we'd never met. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, can we talk about, so Lisa Kudrow is in your brilliant sitcom that I genuinely loved. Thank you so much. Uh, feel good. And she was doing some sort of, I don't know, Zoom chat with Jennifer Aniston. I mean, I guess they just broadcast their Zoom chats. Yeah. It was like an actor on actor, which sounds like a porn category, but it was like one-on-one -on -one conversation about their careers I guess and she mentioned that she loved feel good yeah it's so surreal right like yeah that was a really nice pick me up I've just been hitting a kind of low point of lockdown and it was like ah, oh, I could feel my 13 year old self just 
freaking out. I mean, it was great. And it was so lovely to see like all of our friends in the comedy world, just everyone. It was literally so many people were tweeting about it. It just kept coming up in my feed like, oh my God, May, this is amazing. This is incredible. Um, That's so nice. Uh, how how have you found lockdown? Because you are you living by yourself? I no, I have a flatmate. Um, mm-hmm. thank, thank God, and she's been great. We yeah, we we knew each other quite well before, but now we're like incredibly codependent, and it's been really intense. Not in a bad way. Just like we have all our meals together, we work out together, we work at the table together. Um, yeah, I don't know. I go up and down. I'm ha- I'm in my bed right now in, in my pajamas. I mean, I feel like a lot of listeners would be very excited to know that we're in bed with my Martin. <laughs> I um, I just got kicked off Hinge. So why did you get kicked off Hinge <laughs> for harassing people? No, um, because <laughs> because I, I I'm not laughing at the idea of harassing people. Just to be clear, I'm laughing at the idea that May would do that. <laughs> just to be clear. But basically, I was chatting to this girl and then. I'd only sent a few messages and then she screenshotted it and she emailed it to my agent. She said, I'm being catfished by someone pretending to be Mae Martin. And she also complained to Hinge. And so then I emailed her back and was like, no, that is, that is myself. And then I emailed Hinge and then Hinge permanently deleted my account. And I emailed them and was like, this is a misunderstanding. I am. I am me. Yeah. It's not even like I'm famous, right? Like I was like, oh, I can, what do you want? ID? And they emailed back the meanest email, like our decision is final. And I'm just too embarrassed to tweet at them. Like, please let me, let me back on your, let me flirt. Let me flirt. Yeah. It's too embarrassing. So now the reason I said that was when you said any listeners would be excited to like, please hit me up. (laughs) Hit her up. I'm excited for you that you're famous enough to think that people are pretending to be you. It's weird though, because it's like... What a day. I don't think I'm famous enough that anyone would catfish someone pretending to be me, but I'm... Oh no, I've got two accounts as you. (laughs) Oh, do you? Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, May. Yeah. Let's start... So you're obviously Canadian. Yeah. You grew up in Toronto. I did. I grew up in Toronto. I moved here about... 10 years ago to England. Yeah, I was trying to work out because I think I've known you for about that long. Yeah, I think I met you early days. Yeah. yeah. And I think I think I was with Tom. I think me, you and Tom maybe hung out once. Yeah, that sounds about right. He was one of the first first friends I made in um, England. Well, he's a nice boy. There's no getting away from it. He's a nice boy. Uh, that's Tom Allen, listener, who's on a previous episode of this, if you want to listen. Um, so you were, you were born in Canada. What kind of kid were you? I was... Very extroverted before puberty. Very extroverted, running around. Um, I went to an all-girls school and I felt like the king of the class. Okay. And, uh, I was in all the, like, I think because I was the closest thing to a boy. So, like, I, I, on recess, I would dress up like Backstreet Boys and do a dance. And the girls would act like they had a real Backstreet Boy in that because they didn't know any boys. You know what I mean? I love it. Yeah. And then puberty hit and everything changed. And right. I went to the bottom of the ladder and um hated puberty and then luckily discovered comedy really young when I was about 13. And were you funny? I think I was. I I, I feel like I was way funnier than than I am now. I was <laughs> I I doubt that. I've seen you do stand up very recently. I doubt that. But in my interpersonal life now you you may have noticed Susie I I, I can be I'm quite earnest. I'm like mm-hmm. and I think when I was a kid I was wackier. I was I loved Jim Carrey and I was just a bit weirder, more uninhibited or something. And then maybe when I got an outlet for it, then I chilled out a bit in my interpersonal life. So did you like pretending to be a, a boy when you were a kid? Because I know that I did. Yeah. It was more like I thought I, I just sort of was one. I didn't... Right. I, I remember... Yeah, no, I just kind of thought of myself as 
as one, I guess. I was obsessed with Stand By Me and uh-huh. wanted to be River Phoenix. And um, yeah, in my mind, I just sort of, I sort of just was one. And you mentioned you started stand up really young. You started stand up incredibly young. How old were you when you went to your first comedy club? First comedy club, I was 11. My godmother took me, but I think in stand up, I've changed that story to make it my mom taking me. But okay, sure. That's fine. Is, my godmother took me and... Uh, Don't let the listeners know that we make up stuff sometimes. <laughs> sorry, so sorry. Well, stories have to dovetail and you have to change where you were and who you were with. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, but that was a big moment. I knew I loved comedy already. I, my parents were big fans of stand up comedy. So I listened to vinyl records of like Steve Martin and stuff. And then, yeah, went to a comedy club, got pulled up on stage by the headliner. Um, so, was it a grown up comedy? It was an adult show. Yeah. And they just let an 11 year old in. Yeah, sat in the front row wearing a waistcoat and a bow tie. Oh. <laughs> and then uh, I was just obsessed with it. And then 13, I did my first gig. 13. That's incredible. Is it? <laughs> yeah, of course it is. I mean, I was sort of performing then, but not anything that I'd written. Yeah. Um, I was sort of singing Rogerson Hammerstein in a in an Andram <laughs> theatre group. So when you were pulled onto stage as an eleven year old, do you like do you know that headliner now? Or do they not do comedy anymore? Or are they No, this was I mean, I, all I remember is it was guy in his forties in a suit with grey hair. It was like, like in the old days. That doesn't sound like a comic. What? Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound like the kind of comic you'd have in the early two thousands. It was really in a sort of the club circuit. Mm-hmm. I, your, your quintessential headliner. And so when you went back as a 13-year-old, who were you on stage? I started doing sketch comedy and improv. Okay. Um, so that was what I did first. And then shortly after, when I was about 14, maybe, I, I was doing kind of solo character stuff at Second City. So I, I was playing high school kid. So I was I'd wear my school uniform and I would do this character called Catherine Butchko, who was obsessed with Buffy and... Um, yeah, so I, I was not myself. And then I think it's just, it's taken about 20 years to get closer and closer on stage to who I really am. And um, that definitely didn't happen till my till my 20s. I was doing stand-up, but in my teens, I was kind of kind of unconsciously imitating people I admired. You know, like I'd go <laughs> for a year, I'd be sort of really deadpan, like Bill Hicks and really uh-huh. depressive. I love the idea of like a 16-year-old doing a, a Bill Hicks-style Oh my god! I'm think I was so lucky that people didn't have phones then, and I didn't have some YouTube channel because it was humiliating. Like I used to smoke cigarettes on stage because I thought it was cool, and audiences were just horrified. <laughs> Why is that child smoking? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because May, you look young now. When you were a teenager, you must have looked. Yeah, five. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Younger. Yeah, I, I think that that was there's a, a novelty element that um, I, I think that's probably why I got gigs just because. It was weird. <laughs> okay, so that's who you were kind of being. You were kind of being other people on stage. But what were you like at sort of secondary school? I dropped out early. Um, I dropped out when I was 15, 16 to do comedy and I was a drug addict and <laughs> was kicked out of my house. Okay, so because I wanted to know how much of Feel Good. I'm sure lots and lots of listeners will have watched Feel Good. If you haven't, it's on 4OD and also Netflix if you're listening outside the UK. And it is so good. It's so rare that I watch something that really feels like it's talking about something I know, a kind of love that I know. It feels like it's so rare. And it, yeah, it just grabbed me. It's so good. Thank you. That means a lot. It's a vulnerable thing putting something out there. And, and all I really care about is 
my peers and their opinions and it's so it actually means so much oh well i mean it is brilliant so i'm I'm happy to give you that feedback it's brilliant well done (laughs) um so at this point you were smoking in a comedy club it, it, was it because of being in sort of an adult environment that you started thinking, oh, maybe I'll try drugs? All the kids my age at high school were also smoking weed and experimenting, but there was definitely something more serious about it at the comedy clubs and with older people. I think really what happened was I dated an old man when I was about 15 and he uh, introduced me to Coke and right. sort of downhill from there. But I think that was probably the catalyst and then um and then yeah trying to be cool and and just um super insecure so when you find something that makes you feel confident and it gives you social currency I think it's a recipe for disaster you know totally and at this point did you like with regards to your sexuality maybe we have to go back a little bit further do you remember what your who your first crush was well now in retrospect it was all it was all girls but um and, and boys too, but definitely there were huge all-consuming crushes on camp counselors and on Bette Midler and people in my... Oh yeah, of course, your massive your massive thing for Bette Midler, I forget, it was in one of your shows, wasn't it? Yeah, all-consuming, huge. Uh, from Hocus Pocus, I saw that when I was six and then spent about four years really only thinking about Bette Midler in my day. That was really only the only thing that was going on in my brain. And did you want to, did you sort of create fantasies in your head where like her car broke down near your house or something like that and you ended up meeting her? Is that? This is like pre, I mean, I was sort of six to 10. So it was, it wasn't like they were sex fantasies, but there was, there were erotic elements for sure. It was. Oh, I didn't mean, I didn't mean that her car broke down and then you had sex with her. I meant like, that's how you got to meet her. Like she needed to use the phone. And so you met Beth Midler or something like that. That was my fantasy with Mel C. She broke down nearby my house and had to use my phone. That's really good. That's strong. Yeah. Things like that. Also things like she shows up in my school and she's like, I heard a rumor that there's a kid who's really funny in the school and I'm going on tour and and then coming and taking me out of class in front of everyone and driving me into the sunset or like weird like power dynamic things like I'd have like imagining if she kidnapped me for some reason what would that be like you know what I mean (laughs) so it was quite intense yeah yeah yeah, I loved her I mean I can sort of tell from your voice the feelings are still quite intense (laughs) I saw her on Broadway um a couple of years ago with an, an ex took me to see her in hello dolly yeah she, she's she's in her 70s but she's still got it she's uh so commanding on stage just she's getting standing ovations every time she spoke which was very disruptive to the play which has a plot that must have been hard to sort of continue the thread of the story whilst consistently standing to clap when was your first sort of crush on someone that wasn't on telly or wasn't did you say a camp counsellor? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I as soon as I could, I had I had boyfriend, I had loads of boyfriends, and and then I guess I guess my sort of natural development got interrupted by dating this much older man at a at a young age. But I remember him saying to me, "Oh, you're probably going to be gay," and I was like, "What are you talking about?" That I found it so hurtful, and I was so confused because I was in love with him. And then um, when we broke up, I. Then I think it was my best friend, Nicole, who was one day she just said to me really casually, she said, oh, you know, Sarah, this girl, Sarah has a crush on you. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm, you know, and she, and she just knew before I did. And she was like, you should, you should go out with her. And I just pretend I, <laughs> I tried to act really cool. and was like, yeah, maybe I will. But inside 
everything was slotting into place. And I was like, oh my God. And then, and Sarah was like one of the most popular girls in the school. I couldn't believe it. And then I went out with her when I was about 16. And then from then on, I was dating boys and girls kind of at the same time and mm-hmm. still, still am. That's so interesting that somebody else sort of noticed that before you all sort of said that to you and it took that to sort of slot it into place. Do you think that's because you were so sort of into this older guy? Maybe, yeah. I think if you're properly bi, I think the crushes that you notice at first are the heterosexual ones because they fit into the sort of heteronormative world that you're in. So you're like, oh, great, I'm probably straight because I genuinely am attracted to these people. And a lot of people probably never question that. But if someone, and then when someone of the same sex out of nowhere approaches you then suddenly that door is open and when you were before you sort of left school did you feel like an outsider or were you quite popular I think because of the unusual situation with comedy and stuff it's hard Mm. to know as soon as I started doing comedy I I couldn't wrap my head around being in school so while I was there I was thinking about comedy I was I had this whole other life that I would go to every night and a very adult life yeah yeah and I was gigging kind of five nights a week sometimes so I was wow I was really finding it hard to care about math and things and also I was having all these exciting kind of social interactions with people I admired and so I think I sort of separated myself a bit people were relatively nice to me but I think I kind of was just in my own head and and also I think I felt like as soon as I started having troublingly adult experiences, that kind of separates you from people your own age too, because you you have less in common. Does that make sense? Is this too heavy? No, this is great. And also, A, not too heavy, and B, it it makes sense. Yeah. So when you dropped out of school, you were just sort of like, that's it, I'm going to do comedy full time, and this is going to be my whole life. Pretty much, yeah. I got a job working in the box office at Second City. Right. Um, so I was in the building all the time, and then I would perform when I could. And and for listeners that aren't sort of massively into comedy like we are, Second City is like there's, there's a branch of it in Chicago and yeah. a couple of other places in the states as well. And it's like this chain. Of, yeah, explain to me what it is. Yeah, it's a chain of venues um, across North America. A lot of people started there, like Tina Fey and those types of people. And it's mostly sketch comedy and improv. And um, but lots of yeah, it's, I, I just remember the walls being covered with photographs of the alumni when it was totally mm. awe-inspiring because it was like Catherine O'Hara and Martin Short and you know Eugene Levy and these people yeah that's the thing I mean it's the place where as soon as I started doing comedy and I you you know when you get really into something you sort of read all the books so I'm reading Tina Fey's book I'm reading Amy Poehler's book I'm just I'm reading Steve Martin's book I want to know everything about comedy yeah and Second City is that thing that keeps coming up yeah you start going should I move to Chicago <laughs> and go to Second City it's very cliquey and um mm. kind of cultish in a way or like it has it right um I got totally sucked into the kind of gossipy fun vibe of it right um and then eventually when I was about 16 or 17 I got banned from there for two years because my parents went and spoke to them and said we don't want her here so <gasps> Oh, so your mum and dad weren't cool with you doing so much stand-up? They were. I think they just they were, were understandably not cool about the the drugs and the yeah. relationships. So then, so I haven't been back much, but it was definitely a huge part of my formative years, for better or for worse. But I definitely made also amazing friends there that I still have, and I think it's a great place. And so how long were you there before you came to the UK? 13 to 21, I was doing 
doing comedy yeah. yeah and then I moved to the UK 21 or 22 after you had uh sort of the realization that maybe you weren't completely straight mm. that's when you started dating girls presumably and you were dating boys and girls and you were did you ever sort of feel like you had to come out or was it no I mean I just uh, my parents were really open-minded about sexuality mm-hmm. and always made a point of when my brother and I were younger they'd say you know, are you dating any girls or boys? Like they just would put the option out there. So we knew it was okay, which is pretty. That's so great. So great. It's so rare that parents do that. It's so. I mean, you're the first person that I've interviewed that has said anything, anything like that. Really? Yeah. What other people's parents have been supportive or weren't initially and then sort of came around to it. You're definitely the first person. And I'm probably one of the only people in my friendship group that has said something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. And so I don't know if they had private conversations and found things about it difficult between the two of them but I just was never privy to that so I mm. which is I'm, I feel so lucky and and my brother's straight but they also yeah so they just sort of said the same thing to both of us and it just made me not stressed about it also I think at the time when I told them I was dating a girl for the first time they uh, they were so distracted by worrying about me dropping out of school and stuff that it was like oh, okay whatever you know yeah, we're not suggesting on the podcast that you drop out of school and then tell your parents that you'll get. That's not what we're <laughs> suggesting. That's not. Yeah, that's not a way to get around it. Um, were you always out on stage? Because I know, you know, from watching you for the last say decade or near, I feel like you've always been very open about saying, "Well, I'm dating a girl," or "I'm I'm yeah. dating a boy," or "I had this experience." Was it ever a thing where you felt like, "Oh, I need to"? Because you're quite androgynous. Yeah, yeah. And very cool on stage, I'd say. Thank you. That's okay. I feel like you have I feel like you have that sort of Devon Sawyer cool energy. Oh my god, this is music to my ears. You have no idea how hard I try. Um but Yeah, you've got that. Is it something you feel like you need to address even now on stage? I'm sure you've you've felt as well the mm. the, the shift in how much we're expected to kind of apologize for who we are at the top of a set. Mm. No, I definitely feel and it's, and also I don't know if you've found the, the bigger your profile gets the, the less you have to drag people along and be like hello yes I look like this and yes I'm I'm queer and blah, blah. so I, I feel like I have to do less of that now but I remember as a teenager um, the first review that was ever written of of my stand-up when I was 16 I think was a review and the title was introducing gay may <laughs> and like I, I had never said that about myself that was just something that I think I was even not even talking about my love life on stage, but the person had just been like, she looks mega gay. <laughs> and that rhymes. So what a great piece of writing from them. Yeah. I, I haven't spoken about this on the podcast, so I'm really interested to know your thoughts on it. When you when you say you feel like you need to sort of, I don't, where did you like warn the audience that you're gay or like brace them for it? Yeah, like apologize for us. <laughs> yeah. And because I feel like now, and I could be totally wrong, but I feel like in Canada, I, people would be way more like people would be like, yeah, sure. Not really a big, I get the vibe that somewhere like Toronto, especially would be yeah. very laid back about that sort of thing. Am I right? Or have I just, have I painted Canada in this sort of I think to an ex- warm, fuzzy color? To an extent, I think you are right. I mean, we, you know, we've had gay marriage there since I was a teenager and it, it yeah. definitely a little bit ahead, I think, but it's, the same as anywhere where if you go to a different part of the city, I, I've always kind of been on um, in the alternative circuits a bit. So I've mm-hmm. managed to avoid, but it was really only in the UK touring and stuff that I encountered like, you know. That's what I'm wondering about whether it was different when you came 
Definitely. to the UK. Because again, like, you know, you play London, Brighton, Manchester. I might mention I'm gay on a Saturday night. You're right. It might be, you might get like some jeers, <laughs> but you know, you, you sort of can handle it, I guess. But I have found less so, I guess, since I've become a little more well-known and people come to my tour show to see me. But certainly when I was newer, when I was brand new, it was something that I felt sort of a bit scared about. Like I knew I had to sort of acknowledge it. Yeah, same. And and a lot of my material was about it. And But that may have been just because it was more on my mind then. Or, but mm. yeah, definitely. I felt like I had to sort of guide people through it a bit more and let the, I think Tom Allen had a joke or someone about like people in the audience being like does he know that he's gay and he has to be like yes I know yeah and then they all kind of relax it's definitely improving don't you think oh for sure for sure yeah I feel like people are caring a lot less about my sexuality I mean you occasionally get the tweets don't you if you're on a show and they'll be like oh they always mention they're gay well maybe you don't because you're not because you 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 don't identify as gay may mm. despite what a publication said when you were 16 but no I, I mean we have that thing where just if you talk about your girlfriend then the people are like oh stop talking about being gay and it's like well but a straight comic would talk about their relationship totally and also you can be on a bill where like four straight male comics who are all living the exact same experience at the moment of being 40 with grown up children would do variations of the same joke but no one will go ah they ordered something the same. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas exactly. Um, I would really love to talk more about Feel Good. You must have felt it when it first went out. I, I watched it on the day that it came out on Channel 4, and it felt like Twitter went nuts for it. Thanks. Because I feel like all of these kids that aren't used to seeing loads of queer representation on television. And I, I spoke about this in a previous episode with Kaylee Llewellyn, who wrote In My Skin. And she was saying that she had so many people uh, get in touch with her. And so, and I've seen it as well, like all the art that people are making about feel good yeah, and how much sort of young people are connecting with that. Was that sort of quite overwhelming? Well, it came out right at the start of lockdown. And then, yeah. So that's a weird time to have a show come out. And and uh, I wasn't able to do much press for it. I had a bunch of stuff scheduled no, of course. in America and stuff that I, I didn't get to do. So, so all I have is those... Uh, that artwork and, and the messages that people send me. And it seems like it has a, a small but very passionate fan base. And Well, I don't know if it's small, but certainly passionate. Yeah. Just sort of like looking at the hashtag, people were loving it. Thanks. I, I'm pleased that people are making a, there's a couple of Instagram accounts that are purely, um, what do you call it? Like shipping May and George. Oh, like, right. So they're just dedicated Instagram accounts and it's embarrassing how much I'm on them. I think, but I, I think that I would also be totally on them. Yeah, you have to be, right? You have to be. It's 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 adorable and lovely. And, you know, on the rare occasion that someone's been like, I've drawn you, it makes me feel incredible that someone would take the time to do that. So, yeah, I've seen all of this sort of fan art that's been made about of you and um, George, brilliantly played by Charlotte Ritchie. So how much of Feel Good is real? <laughs> I saw your show Dope. Yeah. That, that was the one that got nominated for the prize in Edinburgh. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that was about addiction and I guess about love as well yeah. and a whole bunch of other things. And so was it off the back of that show that you started writing Feel Good? Yeah, it was um, Channel 4 saying, have a go at narrativizing those themes from that show. So mm -hmm. love and addiction and where those two things intersect. And mm -hmm. um, I guess in that show, I, as a person in that stand-up show, was kind of discovering that addictive behavior was 
permeating all aspects of my life, not just substance use. So mm-hmm. that was kind of the idea um, about a character realizing that. And and about being addicted to sort of the first bit of a relationship or like the, the chase of a relationship. Totally. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have had that experience or. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Or been in a relationship that's really all consuming and feels as intense as any addiction, but it's not necessarily good for you. Um, so yeah, I, I, we wanted to make a romantic comedy where where the audience is really not sure if the central couple should be together, if they're good for mm-hmm. each other. We want to root for them. And I'm a big romantic, so I obviously want them to succeed in the end. But um, yeah, we wanted to kind of subvert the classic rom-com tropes so that really these people don't don't bring out the best in each other necessarily and they have to work pretty hard to to make it work because they have this very visceral attraction to each other absolutely and I feel like even stuff down to like talking about sex talking about strap-ons I feel like that's not something that we have seen yeah much at all totally on television was it important to you that that you gave this sort of technicolor idea of what sex can be like yeah definitely I think I'm trying to think if I've ever, if I've, maybe there were a couple of strap-ons in the L word, but um, you never see the kind of awkward moment of putting one on or. (laughs) No, none of that. Yeah. So it wasn't a conscious choice that I was like, let's get loads of sex in, but um, I definitely didn't want to shy away from it. Because a straight show wouldn't. Exactly. A straight show, the camera would always stay in the room. Exactly. Yeah. And sex is such an important part of relationships and, and power dynamics and all of that. And it's so interesting and rich narratively that we, we wanted to always use sex to move the story along and have interesting revelations and stuff. So it, it was funny how much people picked up on it though. And people like interviewers being like, God, there's so much sex. It's like, well, it's really, there's like two scenes. Uh, oh, I, I didn't think there was so much sex at all. I thought there was the right amount of sex. Like it, it, cause it feels real. And also it's the beginning, certainly at the start, you know, it's the beginning of a relationship. It's that exciting bit. And certainly for George, the character who has never been with a girl before, and this is a new thing for her. I think that's something that's really important to cover. Yeah, I think so. What was it like to shoot it? We all really, really cared about it. So that was helpful because <laughs> I think we all really believed in it and cared about the couple and cared about those characters. And we had a lot of time to rehearse and the schedule was so tight that there wasn't a lot of time to freak out or, you know, ruin a billion takes by laughing. So, yeah, it was it was good. Now, there's something else I'd love to talk about, but in the show, the other thing that I feel like feel good covers that I haven't really seen anywhere else before is May talking so openly about sort of her gender mm-hmm. and about the sort of fluidity of it, of the fear that she, so the character, I know so many of you listening are going, yes, yeah, we know we've seen it. You don't need to explain, but I'm going to just in, for the few that haven't seen it yet. Um, when George and May are sort of going through a rocky bit, May really worries that it's because she isn't a boy. Mm. And I've certainly had relationships in the past with girls that were straight before they were dating me, where I've really worried about that. Definitely, Yeah. And I've never seen that ever. And I've never even had the bravery to talk about that on stage. Oh, that, yeah. Even though I felt it. Yeah. I've just happened to have dated, yeah, a handful of, of women who have never been with girls before. And, and that is, it can be a very romantic dynamic and mm-hmm. validating in a way and exciting. And I don't think that those women are straight women. Like, no. But um, it can also be totally anxiety inducing and make you worry that you're 
long term not what they're looking for or feel inadequate and I think my character already is experiencing kind of gender dysphoria and isn't sure whether that's coming from feeling inadequate with George who who ultimately really just wants her to be herself yeah or coming from some internalized thing that's the thing you're rooting the whole way through the show to be like no May she likes you just be yourself you're sort of trying to yeah that's what I came away from it just being like come on May you can do this yeah exactly (laughs) was it important that you covered that sort of gender dysphoria within the show yeah I think um I mean, in a lot of aspects of the show, I think there's a, there's ambiguity, mm. and that's because um, there is in my brain. I don't I don't have the answers when it comes to addiction. Why someone has an addictive personality and someone else doesn't? Uh, love and what's toxic and what's not? How much personal responsibility should we take for our part? I, I don't know. I'm still struggling with these things, and my gender identity is yeah, especially in recent years, turned out to be a source of some confusion so yeah I just wanted to be honest about that and not not have all the answers and show that that's okay I know that that will have been such a powerful thing for so many people to see because I feel like a lot of people will struggle with that sort of thing I know it's something that I I I, I'm quite comfortable in my own skin these days but certainly as a younger person I was all over the shop and I feel like if something like feel good had, uh, had existed it would have really given me a bit of hope and a bit of hand-holding that's nice that I was normal yeah I've had some really nice messages that are yeah that mean a lot so I hope it has especially I think about people in lockdown with with families that maybe aren't supportive or or whatever so I hope it's been helpful for some young people I mean we get hundreds and hundreds of emails into the show and lots of young people and, and older people are living in, in places where they don't feel like they can really be themselves. Yeah. It's a weird thing, isn't it? Because of feel good coming out in lockdown. On the one hand, you must have been like, oh man, I'm not getting to do this interview or that interview. And I'm and I could have gone here and promoted it and I could have done that and been way more visible rather than just being in your flat. But then again, it coming out in lockdown was probably amazing for many of the watchers. Yeah, maybe. And all the all the press I've done for it has been from my living room. So in a way it's been kind of intimate. I feel like loads of people have seen it the inside of my living room and like the bad haircuts I'm giving myself. And <laughs> that's kind of nice in a way. It's very, it's not the kind of glossy press tour that I had envisioned, <laughs> but it's kind of nice. So what do you feel like is, is sort of next for you? It feels like you started comedy so young and you, for, for me, I feel like you're really inspiring that you, knew yourself when although you're saying now that you don't know yourself so I'm sort of contradicting myself immediately but because of doing comedy and having the confidence to get up on stage and be a version of yourself from such a young age now you've got this great sitcom what is there what is there that you want to do oh my god so much other than marry Bette Midler obviously (laughs) oh yeah there's a lot of celebrity conquests that need to be made (laughs) um wouldn't mind finding a spouse uh that would be good but there's there's loads yeah I'm, I'm really pleased that I enjoyed acting so much I didn't know if I would and I was so nervous about it and then I loved it so I'd love to do more of that I'm writing more feel good although it's all up in the air so because of corona we're who knows but fingers crossed and then developing like a teen a teen show that I would play a cop in so oh, <laughs> I don't cool. know. Yeah, stuff up in the air and just just trying to develop new tv things but um I, I don't know. I, I had an hour of, I don't know where you were at with stand up before lockdown, but I it was just 
putting together an hour I was really happy with. Yeah. And now none, none of it's relevant and I'm so rusty and I'm gutted about that. Yeah, I was halfway through a tour. And so the show was like maybe like 30 dates in. I'd done some before Christmas and then I'd done a few. And it was like I was really enjoying it. I had the confidence to go off piste and then come back. And now I'm just like, I don't know what's going to happen when the show, the show could be totally different when I take it out. I know. And and, and now, of course, we have to comment on everything that's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Of course. As we, as we should. But it's, um, yeah, stand-up is going to be really interesting <laughs> after all this. If there is an after all this, maybe we're just podcasters now. Maybe that's what we do. Maybe it'll be a, a distant memory. I really hope not. I really hope not. It's... I mean, I've always really admired how much fun you seem to be having on stage and I can tell that you really love it and you love what you do. And Oh, I really like it, yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of in awe of that. I always feel like a fraud, but I do love it and I miss it so much. Why do you feel like a fraud? You're someone that's like, you've, you're critically acclaimed. I don't know if I've ever seen you have a bad show. Oh, there's there's been many, but yeah, I don't know why that. I think everybody has a bit of imposter syndrome, but um, oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You remember that gig we did recently, where the in the middle of my set, this woman went, "No one cares." Well, no, but what had you just said? You'd said something about gender. Yeah, about gender, and she went, "No one cares." But then some people thought that she was trying to be nice and supportive, but then I didn't get that vibe. I thought she was being like shut up and then I got a few messages from people who'd been sat around her and they were like she was hammered and so and she was heckling all through the night it's moments like that where you're like oh god the idea that (laughs) you just pray that people care what you're saying because otherwise it's a very real thing to be doing just talking at people oh of course and it's so I mean similar to what you're saying about feel good the kind of stand-up that you do is very honest and very exposing. I've really, I really admire that about your stand-up. Actually, that you are really willing to tell the audience everything. Thanks. I'm, I'm not a very good joke writer, so I have to be honest. I, I really admire. I mean, the type of comedy I love watching is really tightly structured jokes and observations and things. I just don't have that skill, so I tell sort of um, poignant stories from my life. It totally works. Um, May, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's so, so many interesting things to have discussed. Um, the, the question that I ask at the end of every episode is, I'm just trying to decide which time to go back to. So maybe if maybe that moment when you sort of went into puberty and you stopped being that really outgoing child mm. and maybe went in a little bit into yourself, maybe before you were on stage, if you could pick up like, a dream phone. Do you remember the pink dream phones? Well, if you could pick up one of those and call that version of you. Yeah. And not to change anything about what's coming up, but if you could give little May a bit of advice about what's to come, what would you say? I would say to young May, um, I would say you're going to spend a lot of energy going in the wrong direction for a while. And then after a while you will get back to the person that you were before puberty really but don't don't stress um stay away from older dudes and yeah just give give her a hug I think I was so desperate to be liked and wanted and I I'd try to take away some of that desperation that comes up again and again on the show of people saying the desire to be liked yeah, I mean, I think everyone feels that even as an adult, don't they? It's, and it's such a waste of energy. Um, but it must be some biological thing. 
Well, I think that I would like to go and give uh, Little May a hug, but next time I see you in real life, I'll give you a proper hug. Um, May, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think that you're brilliant and I'm crossing everything that Feel Good gets the deserved second series. Thank you so much. It's really nice to talk to you. That was the brilliant May Martin. As we mentioned in the interview, you can watch Feel Good on 4OD or if you're outside of the UK, it is on Netflix. It's absolutely brilliant. May's also got some stand-up, I think, maybe on Spotify and you can download lots of things. So check out her website. There's lots of stuff there. I'm sure you'll enjoy her stuff. Um, as ever, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Thank you to those of you that have got in touch. Please get in touch. You know the email. It's hello at outwithsusieruffle.com and I will see you next week. Until then, have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye.